On November 5th, 2006, Saddam Hussein was found guilty of crimes against humanity and ultimately hanged on December 30th, 2006. Three years before that, on December 13th, the once mighty ruler was found hiding underground, dug out of a hole and captured. But it's what went into that capture and how a U.S. Army Mandarin Chinese linguist named Eric Maddox played a huge role in tracking down the Ace of Spades. Strap in, folks, because we're headed for a wild ride into Crete, Iraq, on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Brian Jodis back once again. Eric Maddox, welcome to Pick Up the Six Podcast. Thank you, Brian. I'm so excited uh, to have you join us in this uh, in this series of Pick Up the Six. We've heard some incredibly powerful stories about service before self, strength of purpose, and things that, uh, that we just want to talk about and, and share these stories that folks might remember having heard about, but dig into a little bit. So thrilled to have you join us on this show today. So tell us a little bit about Eric Maddox, a kid from Oklahoma who ends up as an army ranger and a Mandarin Chinese linguist. How do we get there? Sure. So Brian, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. I had a very normal childhood. I was no way interested in the military. I wasn't in Boy Scouts. I don't think I ever shot a gun when I was a kid. Um, played sports, went to school, went to University of Oklahoma, and I was coming into my senior year, and I had a kind of a calling to join the military. I, I did finish. I graduated from the University of Oklahoma, and I enlisted, and I wanted to be an infantryman. I wasn't really sure what that was. Uh, got an 82nd Airborne contract, really had a desire to go to ranger school, went through basic training, hated it, thought it made a huge mistake, got assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division and tried to get to ranger school as fast as I could. It get there fast and failed three times before I ever graduated ranger school. It started to really embrace what the military was about. And when we were deployed with the 82nd, we were in Panama for several months and I, I really liked foreign languages and realized, kind of learned, the United States military has a foreign language program. So I took the test. They said, you can learn, any, you can potentially, you have the capability to learn any language in the world, which I still question the validity of that test. But I picked Chinese Mandarin. I thought it was extremely difficult. And I just felt like the United States Army taught the guy who's afraid to jump off a high dive how to jump out of airplanes. And the guy who's never shot a gun and graduated from ranger school, let's see if they can make the guy who made a B in Spanish pass Chinese Mandarin. And so I took Chinese Mandarin. And the thing is, you've got to have an MOS. And there are only two. You can be a voice interceptor, which I thought was boring, or you can be an interrogator. And so they also said, hey, the interrogation school is only eight weeks. By the way, we don't interrogate prisoners right now and most peaceful time in world history, you're going to be doing Chinese intel collection. I thought, great, went and learned Chinese Mandarin, kind of stumbled through this interrogation course. And quite honestly, I should have flunked it. Like, I think they passed me because I had, I'd already been a sergeant. I had a ranger tab and they were like, kind of asked me, they're like, are you trying to fill this course? Or are you just stupid? And even at that moment, I knew these interrogation techniques, they don't make any sense to me, but they, I got through. And for the next couple of years, everything was Chinese Mandarin. 9-11 occurs. 
right? We start going to wars, but I'm still focused on Chinese Mandarin. Then the war in Iraq broke out. So we're living in this post 9-11 world. It's interesting in these early parts of your career, man, there's a couple roadblocks, sort of some stumbling blocks out the gate here that that almost kind of trip you up. That's going to be a bit of a precursor to what life later in the military might look like. So it's this post 9-11 world and we've got the war in Iraq and it's 2003 and life for you changes pretty quickly in a way that you're like, I don't even know what you're asking me to do and why you're asking me to do this. So Mandarin Chinese linguist, and by the way, Ni Hao and Xi Xi for joining us uh, on the program today. That's the only Chinese I know from my dad's time as the defense attache to Beijing. Um, uh-huh. So so how do you end up as a linguist, a Chinese Mandarin linguist, getting pulled into the war in Iraq and ultimately sent off to be a part of some intel gathering interrogation teams? So Brian, that's a great question. So here I am, I'm a Chinese Mandarin linguist. I had been stationed for a few months in Beijing. I'd worked at the defense attache office as a linguist. Now I was working in 2003, I was an intelligence collection officer in the army, but assigned to the defense intelligence agency. I'm stationed in Los Angeles, California. I wear a suit and tie every day for work. My job is to hit up, you know, Chinese scientists and researchers along the West Coast. I am straight intel collection. I'm barely in the army. Mm-hmm. 9-11 kicks off, right? And they go to war in Afghanistan. And I really wanted to go. I thought that'd be great. And they told me straight up, you're never going to war. You're Chinese Mandarin. You're focused there. Iraq comes out and they said, don't even think about it. So, okay, I'm focusing on my mission, my job. Three months into the war, I get these highly, highly unexpected top secret orders for Baghdad. And I'm like, cool, but wait, why me? And my commander says, Eric, I don't know who this is. This is a top secret order. You're leaving in 10 days. I ship off to the Baghdad International Airport. I have no idea where I'm going, to who I'm going to get there in this group. And I knew something was messed up, Brian, because I get picked up by this little, little group of soldiers, but they're not in uniforms. They've got full beards. They're looking kind of soldiers rough. aren't supposed to have beards, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they took me away from anyone else on the plane, took me in the small building, set me down, and gave me the most unexpected briefing I'd ever heard. And they're like, we're the Joint Special Operations Command. It's the task force responsible for tracking down the most wanted people in the world. We're going after Saddam, the ace of spades. And I am in shock. You're like, hold on a second. Hold on a second. We're doing what? What now? You want me to do what? I'm a Mandarin Chinese linguist, guys. I don't, what, what's, what's the deal here? So this, this rough and tumbled bearded group of guys come at you and they're like, we're JSOC. And you're like, okay, so what, how do, how do they set it all up for you? How, how do they, how do they bridge that that gap of why am I here to ultimately, all right, we, let's get to work and let's get going. Yeah. Well, I mean, these guys weren't really rough and tumble. They're kind of nerdy. They still had beards. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> first thing I said was that's so cool. I didn't even know if you guys actually existed. I, I didn't. I'm like, now you, I know you do. What on earth am I doing here? I'm a Chinese Mandarin linguist. And they said, you know, you are a trained interrogator. I said, stop, fellas. You know, I've never done an interrogation before in my entire life. Seriously, what am I doing here? They said, Eric, you're infantry. You're, 
you graduated ranger school. They said, we are the interrogators for this Joint Special Operations Command. We have Delta Force teams out there, outside the wire, every day looking for Saddam. They said, we have a team in Tikrit, Iraq. It's Saddam Hussein al-Tikriti. That team keeps calling us interrogators to go out there with them on their raids and missions. They said, Eric, we're interrogators. We're intel. We're not infantry. <laughs> so we called the Army. Because JSOC, they can get anything they want. And they said, they called the Army, said, give us a list of every single interrogator who's former infantry and a graduate of Ranger School. They said, man, you are the only name on the list. Welcome to Baghdad. So you're in Baghdad. These guys have found the one guy who sort of checks all the boxes to help them through this operation. Where do they take you next? And tell me about the Delta Force guys. So who are these sure. guys? Where do you end up next? So I guess I checked all the box. I guess the one box that didn't need to be checked was that I'd actually done interrogations before, but I'd been trained. I was a certified interrogator. I was there a couple of days. They send me up to Tikrit to this Delta Force team. And it's Saddam's hometown. Picked up with these guys. And the men, I mean, as soon as they picked me up, it's the middle of the night. And the guy said, hey, we're meeting at the house. They're having an operations order. They're going out in an hour. And within an hour of being there, we're leaving the wire. We're going, I'm going on my, shoot, this is the first time I've ever been to a war zone. And now we're leaving the wire. We're going on a raid. And these guys are awesome. You know, we conducted this raid. They hit this house so fast and hard. I go in there, do my first interrogations. And Brian, I don't remember where. I have no idea what this prisoner said, but I'm just trying to act the part. We went on a second and third raid. So, you know, raids are over. We're coming inside the wire. And all I'm thinking is, thank goodness I'm still alive. That was awesome and crazy. Please tell me they're going to send me back to Baghdad, right? Like, got my fill. That was cool. Well, the next morning, the commander says, you're, you're staying around. You're going to stick around with us. And I asked, what do you need? And he said, we don't know who the enemy are. We, we really don't understand how to get these prisoners to cooperate. There's no uniform. There's no smoking gun. There's no unit we're going after. And at that time, I was like, but aren't you all going after the people on the deck of cards? And it was at that time, Brian, that the commander said, Eric, there's actually nobody on the deck of cards here in Tikrit, but there is a war. This is important. We need to actually find who's coming up against us. Who are the enemy here in the Sunni Triangle? So that was kind of the beginning of what I understood my mission was in Saddam's hometown of Tikrit. I want to get into how you started having conversations with these guys. So essentially what happens is you go out on a raid you're scooping prisoners up, you're bringing them back inside the wire, then it's your job to talk to them and try to get information out of them. We're going to talk about how you did that and the process that you developed sort of on the job training here to figure out how to be able to do that with these guys. But tell me a little bit about Tikrit. Tikrit's an interesting setting. So you got Baghdad as this major area. You mentioned before the fact that the end of Saddam Hussein's name is Al-Tikrit, meaning that's where he's from. So Paint the stage for me in the setting of what Tikrit is and why this is a place for you guys to be. Sure. So it's Saddam Hussein al-Tikriti, right? That, that's his town. Now, Tikrit, really, I'm going to say it was it's somewhere between 20, 25,000 people. It's right on the Tigris River. 
and it doesn't really have much value other than it's Saddam's hometown. So he builds like what you would describe as a palace complex there. It's one of the places where he would spend his time there, Baghdad, right? But he was very paranoid. Saddam always insisted on, he had this bodyguard system and he had three layers of bodyguards. He had inner circle bodyguards, second sector, third section. And he did this for almost 30 years. So he only trusted his people to be his bodyguards. So over a 30 year system to Crete, really, it was the recruiting station for all bodyguards of Saddam. So when I get there, it's sort of this uneducated group. He didn't want his people close to him to be all that well-educated. They're very Sunni. They're loyal to the degree to which they obviously feared him, but they are related to him. And he liked to be loved by them. But there wasn't much going on in Tikrit. They obviously were horrified knowing the United States is invaded, that this is going to be enemy number one town. And when we get there, it's void of anyone on the deck of cards. Well, you can imagine so many people on the deck of cards are from this town. And it was this kind of a mystery of like, why aren't they here? And what is here? And all we could find, so we have 15,000 soldiers that we, when we invaded Iraq, put 15,000 into Crete. It was very quickly, you could go through every house, every village, and it's like, this is void of senior leaders. Why? We did not understand. But what we started to figure out is, this whole place is relatives and old bodyguards and relatives of bodyguards. That's what this town's about. So conventional wisdom or not even conventional wisdom, quite frankly, at this point, you've basically raided the entire town. Like you, you guys have seen everything that's to be seen and who's potentially there. And none of these guys, none of these bad guys are there. And you're able to scoop up people, bring them in to interrogate them to try to get some info. But, but, but wisdom at the time when you get there is he's definitely not here, right? The wisdom was that he's definitely not here, but also, Brian, we have a problem. When we invaded, we built this deck of playing cards and every one of those individuals had a high price tag reward if they somebody turned them in for getting location. Now, when somebody turned in, Saddam's two sons, Uday and Kusay, that one individual received $15 million per son. So everybody wished they could find somebody on the deck of cards. I don't think anybody wished they'd turn in Saddam, but there were plenty of people coming in every day to the front gate saying, hey, I know where the king of diamonds is. Hey, I know where the eight of clubs is. And all this intel led to this mass confusion. By the time I get to Iraq, months into the war, this army, this, this task force of Joint Special Operations Command, every commander in the country is tired of looking like an idiot, believing all these false information. Mm -hmm. So it's very hesitant to say what intel is right and what intel is wrong. That was really the, the, the it's important part of the landscape that I was entering, that I was an intel guy. And I was the probably the most likely person to make you look stupid. That's what a commander looked at intel people as. I want you to walk us through the timeline, but from three perspectives. You've got to build confidence in your team, the Delta Force guys, the leader that's there with you, and those, those higher-ranking officials. You've got to find a way to build some confidence and rapport with these prisoners. 
And maybe you got to find a way to build some inside of yourself. So walk me through the timeline of, okay, look, we're here. This is not an ideal situation. The scenario is not great, but we're going to go do the best we can. You are a kind of guy that is going to do, I got to do the best I can with what I got here. I got to see this thing through. I got to at least give it my best shot. So now let's start. Absolutely. Yep. So great perspective of those three groups that I had to gain some confidence in. I will say when I first arrived there, there's very little confidence on the Delta Force team towards me because I'm not one of them. And if you're not one of them, you're, you're just not one of them. But they gave me my own room to do the interrogations. They gave me my own linguist. And they really just figured if you stay out of our hair and we don't really have to see you and you don't mess with things, you know what? You're doing this thing we don't want to do, which is kind of go through all these prisoners that we pull off and spend all this time and kind of check that block. So that's all the purpose you have for us. I didn't talk to them. I didn't hang out with them. And I was terrified to even eat at the same table as them. I didn't sleep in the same part of the house, but they let me communicate with the prisoners. Good. Enough. Right. I was like the butler at best with these prisoners. They had no idea what they were doing. But the one thing that they knew was there were no uniforms, no military, no chain of command. And the United States military had falsely arrested so many hundreds of people that if they kept their mouth shut, they would be kicked out the back end of the prison within 90 days. So they had no reason to talk to me, zero whatsoever. Now, they didn't think I was any better or worse than any other interrogator. They didn't know. They'd never been interrogated before. And then my self-confidence basically said, you know what? I started off when I first got to Tikrit using the Army interrogation techniques, which are very systematic, basically so as to make this person think we know everything about you. We have the evidence. So it was within a couple of days, 14, 16 hours of interrogations that I said, you know what? I almost flunked being an interrogator, but I was right. These interrogation techniques are stupid and they don't work. I, 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 I love being right. Boy, I wish I was not right this time. This is a problem. So I realized we don't have a technique to gain cooperation from prisoners, but at least I didn't almost flunk that school because I'm just stupid. Because they just would never work on somebody who had a plausible deniability or a reason not to talk. So what I did at that point is said, I don't know how to gain cooperation, but I know how to listen to people. And so I just said, what can I do to keep the conversation going? How do I get them at least engaged and gain some sort of transparency? And it's at that point, Brian, where I said, wait a second. There's ways to ask questions to gain transparency. And it's not the type of question. It's the way I'm listening to them, right? How do I listen for what matters to them to get them engaged in some topic of conversation? How do I get them to kind of look at me and go, it's worth my time to talk to you and in a way that they start going, would you be willing to help me, Mr. Interrogator? If I Now I want to put a little bit of risk out there and say, can you help me get out of here? What would that take? for? Because really, you show up with a prisoner and their mindset is, well, you guys kicked down my door. You came in my house and you arrested me. Talking to you would only do me bad. There's nothing good coming out of my mouth, right? It's sort of what people say. When you get, you get arrested, plead the fifth. Don't ever talk to a cop. That's a good advice. Hey, say if there's any police officer, nobody's asking you questions to help you. 
They're trying to get you to drop information. So I had to turn that tide. And really, it wasn't a matter of building confidence. It was a matter of building trust with mm-hmm. prisoners. So for me, the evolution of being as interrogator said, this isn't about gaining persuasion. It's about gaining power through influence. And then I started to understand, say, wait, wait, wait. You know how I gain influence? is actually give control to the prisoners by pushing these conversations to exactly where they want to go. I make this about them, for them, of them, and I become that trusted advocate. So when I started to get this piece of information, you know, you've got these Delta guys and they're all A personalities and they're watching over this Intel goofball. So they started to like the way I questioned. They said, you know, this guy's not bad. Not exactly sure why he spends all this time with these prisoners, but this is Okay, so I started to gain the confidence there. And I always have a general self-confidence, right? And I think you do, Brian. You know, in my history as an infantry guy, I really struggled. I I failed ranger school three times before I passed. I flunked the heck out of jump master school before I passed. And I got dead last in my Chinese Mandarin class. So if I don't fail at something, I don't even think it's worth doing. So I have a lot of confidence. Like failure's not, not succeeding. Failure is a platform to 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 expedite growth. It just is. You're going to learn 10 times more. So I always had a natural self-confidence and said, you're really giving yourself a chance to grow here because you're failing so badly. So when these things all sort of came together, I was like, wait, I'm getting the confidence of these prisoners. This team's starting to trust the information I'm giving. I know I can do this now. I've got this figured out. Then we started getting intel that became actionable. Failure is a data point. It's a data point along the process to ultimately get to where you're trying to go. And if you consume it that way, all right, I learned something here. Let me take this data point and figure out a way to progress going forward. Do a point of clarity for me. So in this interrogation space, because I'm interested in this, it's not zero dark 30 style interrogations. What, what, what's it like in the room? And then how are you talking to these guys? Is there is there uh, is there a translator? I mean, what what and it doesn't what's that look like? So great question. The U.S. compound in the town of Tikrit was about the size of a university campus. That would what you would call a Saddam um, presidential complex. So imagine a large state university. Mm-hmm. Imagine the school buildings were like palaces, little sure. palace buildings. The Delta Force team had their own palace house. I'm going to say it's 12,000 square feet. Well, that palace house had a pool house with this big, deep pool. It was Saddam's wife's pool house. And the pool house had multiple bedrooms. And they gave me one of the bedrooms in the pool house. So it was very nice, you know, 20 by 15 square feet. They had, the team had boarded up all the windows. And they're beautiful wooden furniture. So they've removed anything that could be dangerous, but it's wooden furniture. Um, Just little crates of MRE stacked together for our table. I'm sitting about three to four feet away from the prisoner. He's in another beautiful wood chair uh, across this little makeshift table. We could reach out and touch each other. And we sat talking one on one. I had a linguist next to me. So I didn't speak. Arabic. I didn't speak Iraqi dialect of Arabic. And our linguists were Americans that had left Iraq in the first Gulf War of 1991. They'd been in the United States about 12 years at that point. So their English was pretty good. 
but it wasn't perfect, but their Iraqi Arabic was fantastic Mm -hmm. and they had to translate every word. The interrogations could go 15 minutes or they go 15 hours. And it all depended on the level of trust we were building, our missions. We, we, but I really had to gain intelligence, which did just one of a few things. I had to build the identity of the insurgency network in the Sunni Triangle. I had to try to locate the exact location of members in this insurgency. And then I had to give some additional verifications of what the impact of the capture would mean of this individual and where they could potentially lead us to in order that when I went to my Delta Force commander and said, hey, we could go here, our person can take us. This prisoner knows because of these reasons. And if we get this individual, the the fruit of that might be they could take us to this next step. So those are just that it's that simple. That's all we care about in terms when you're hunting down high value targets, build the network, identify the exact locations. And then if we get there, what are we what are we going for next? Most people might think. Um, okay, Eric's trying to get them to break. In our brains, I think there's this moment where this prisoner is going to quote unquote break, and that's where you're going to finally get what you need. For you, though, was it a breaking point or was it, how did you identify when you knew you had them in a moment where they weren't being truthful to you? You had developed a way to talk to them, talk to them, talk to them, talk to them. And in doing that, you were able to find out, oh, I know when they're not being honest. Talk, talk me through that. So great question, right? And people say, oh, it's body language or eye movement, nonverbal. For me, I use data. They're actual words. And so the way I did it is a prisoner would always want to say, hey, I'm innocent, Eric. And I said, well, if you're innocent, you don't mind talking to me. And I said, of course, I don't mind talking to you. My goodness. And I said, well, if you're innocent, you wouldn't lie to me. And they said, of course, I wouldn't lie to you. And I said, but if you did lie to me, I mean, that would be a problem. They said, Eric, you can kill me. I said, well, I can't kill you, but I'll make a deal with you. If you don't, I talked to you for an hour or so. You don't tell me a lie. I said, heck, I'm going to get you out of here today. You don't walk out that door. And they said, my goodness, Eric, why wouldn't I? Great. And I start talking to them about their life. Now, here's the trick is when you're trying to identify lies, people want to build a picture of somebody's life in a sequential manner or a a non-sequential, like like reverse chronological order, right? So what does that mean? It would say, um, tell me about where you live. I've lived here. Well, tell me where you lived before there. Well, five years before I moved from this house, right? That's a reverse chronological order of houses they've lived. You can couple that with jobs they've had, friends, travel, ways they make money. And you try to take all this information and then maybe lay those as blueprints of someone's life and look for smidges. Well, here's the thing. What I know is when you're talking to somebody, these individuals, they will tell you 95% of their life and be completely honest about it. They're going to omit the 5% that gets them in trouble, right? What does that mean? Let's say Somebody got involved in the insurgency because their sister's husband, so it would be their brother-in-law, was, you know, makes bombs and it recruited this prisoner to help them buy vehicles in order that they can uh, place the bombs in the back and go blow up IEDs, improvised explosive device, right? That, that's the role. So when I'm talking to this person, they may want to admit the omit the existence of that brother-in-law. They may want to omit the existence of that sister. 
But whatever they do, they don't want to have to discuss their connection to the, the thing that makes them guilty, right? So what I do is I talk to people, but I don't go in reverse chronological order or chronological order. I jump around from part of their where they live, to their job, to their family. But I do it in a way that seems very natural. I call it continuity questioning, but it skips so far around that I can build the blueprint of their world without them knowing it. So for example, I'm talking to a guy and he says, you know, he has three brothers and I talk to him for an hour and I look at him and say, are we good? And he said, I haven't lied to you. And I said, uh, you actually have four brothers and his jaw drops and he's scared and he goes, whoa, how'd you do that? Well, what he doesn't realize is we were talking and he was talking to me about his three older brothers. Let's say he has two older brothers and one younger brother. And as I'm talking to him and they're talking about going to family events, let's say like weddings, he would always say when they go to a wedding and they drove to the wedding, whichever sibling he was with, the oldest sibling would drive, right? You know, he didn't pinpoint that exactly, but I started to notice whoever the oldest sibling is in the vehicle, the oldest sibling drives, right? And in this particular wedding that was three years earlier with, you know, one of their sisters, the two older brothers were in a vehicle with their spouses in the back. And my prisoner said that he was in the vehicle with his younger brother, yet my prisoner was riding shotgun. I've got a missing older brother, Brian. And he didn't know he told me that, right? And so I can piece those things together. That's not taught in interrogation school. And I don't know how to teach people how to do that. But one thing you can do is you can realize when you're talking to someone, you don't ever want to paint the canvas of their life for them. Let them tell you, but don't ever put in details that they don't tell you. But when you want to submit those details and you want to figure out what they are, you've got to ask them in a way that doesn't say, wait, do you have any other brother? Are you sure that's all? That gives them a hint. They can shade away. Do what about this sister's husband? So it's that way. So I first set up the, hey, we're cool. I'm just trying to figure out if you're innocent to Eric. I wouldn't tell you a lie. But if you do, you can keep me in jail forever to whoops. Gee, I guess we have an extra brother, right? Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And what you're ultimately able to do is by investing that time and by just talking through things, you're able to then piece together when they're not being truthful. And and I would assume there are some that were totally truthful with you and you let them go after what, however much <laughs> amount of time. Right. But then the ones they're so brutally it, truth, the truth hits you in the face. I can tell it so easily. And I, I get them out before lunch. I don't even Check, I get them out of that jail and, and free as fast as I can. But the ones that aren't, okay, now we got some data points that we can start piecing together to ultimately try to get us the intel we need to go find these bad guys wherever they may be. So so you're developing this, this process is happening. What, what else am I missing related to how you are able to communicate with them to get that? Okay, so let's check this out. Let's say I catch this guy in this lie, right? And now he's what? going to spend the rest of his life in, in prison, Brian, that does not do me any good to catch him in a lie, right? So what I need to do now is this prisoner's like, Eric, I lied. I don't want to go to jail. And so here's real quickly kind of how it looks. It's basically me saying, if you're not, if you don't want to spend the rest of your life in prison, because you lied to me, you've got to help me. 
Eric, I can't help you. Yes, you can help me. I know that third brother or that brother-in-law are in the insurgency. Eric, I don't want to take you to a loved one. And I say, let me ask you something. Did that person start the insurgency? Your, your brother. And they'll say, no, they were recruited. I say, great. Take me to who recruited them. The prisoner ultimately says, Eric, if I take you to who recruited my brother's leader, they will know it was me. They will kill me and they will kill them. And I let them stew on it and they go, but I have an idea, Eric. What if you went over to these bad guys, these insurgent fighters across town? They don't know I know where they live, but I know exactly where they live. And Eric, guess what? They actually know also where the leader of my brother is. If you'll go to their house and capture them and go straight to my brother's leader, they'll never know my brother's leader, that it was me. They'll think it was them. And I go, all right, now here's the deal. If I go to your brother's leader and capture them, I need to make sure your brother does not join another group. And the only way I can ensure that is I'm going to let you out of here. You're going to go tell your brother you've been talking to this crazy interrogator and that he knows everything about our family because you told me every house you lived at during that one hour conversation and that your brother gets to go back to work. He's never wanted by the Americans again. I'm going to forgive all of his fighting and killing. If I see either one of you walk out of line, I'm raiding or bombing every single house you've ever stepped in for the rest of your life. Are we cool? And he goes, that's awesome. Brian, check this out. He took me to prisoners across town I did not know about. He took to my brother, his brother's leader, which is higher than his brother. I let him out of prison because I've got overstocked U.S. military prisons here. So I'm clearing out the system. And most importantly, I'm scaring the heck out of the insurgency because they're going, oh, my gosh. Now they're releasing bad guys. They're releasing innocent people. Who's the spy? Everybody's against us. And they start turning against each other. Now, when they come to me, they're much easier to break because they see this thing's all haywire. And now they start knowing somebody turned them in. So it's not, I'm at a war against America. They're saying, you know what? This network, the Saddam loyalists, they're not loyal at all. And I don't know how loyal I am now. Now they come into me, they're already softened up and they're going to break a lot faster. Part of what just happened there is you, you all the you, you kind of get them to suggest like that guy. He was like, well, I have an idea. And you're like, great. What do you want to do about it? How can we do this together, man? We're in this thing. What do you want to do about it? And then he's able to pivot you to the next point. All right, let's start checking off the boxes of the timeline to ultimately how we end up at that moment where we pull the cover open and we're looking down in the dirt and there's one of the worst bad guys of our generation, but there's a lot of things that have to happen to get us there. So these things start happening. You start making headway here. You're able to start connecting dots from these low ranking kind of nothing people to ultimately find out who the major players are. So walk our listeners through the timeline that essentially gets us to the major players that get us to Saddam, knowing that it's not all smooth sailing along the way. Sure. So I arrived, I got to Tikrit in July of 2003, just for, I don't want to ruin the movie, but uh, he'll be captured on December 13th, right? So July to December, this kind of figuring out the process is all through the month of August, all through the month of September. By October, it was like, wait a second, these prisoners are providing information and this might be right. So we start building this network, right, of the insurgency. And it's like, all we have is bodyguards in this town, but it came down to this family of bodyguards. Their, their tribal name were <clears throat> Al Muslet, this Al Muslet bodyguard. So then we get prisoners and we focus on this family and we start realizing, wait a second, there's a lot of bodyguards in this family, but at the tops, this one 
man named Muhammad Ibrahim. So as we're getting close to this Muhammad Ibrahim and talking to his brothers and his nephews, it's like, why on earth does he have so much power? How in earth does one bodyguard, and I was actually talking to one of his nephews, and his nephews was talking about, you know, Muhammad Ibrahim, Muhammad Ibrahim's brother, and then his kids were kind of in that nephew's age group, and the nephew was saying, oh, this brother of Muhammad Ibrahim, his kids and I are close, and this sister of Muhammad Ibrahim, his kids and I are close, and Muhammad Ibrahim, this top bodyguard, had a son, and I asked this nephew, I said, well, are you friends with this cousin of yours? He said, Eric, I wouldn't look at the guy. I said, what do you mean, guy? He's a year younger than you. And then if you said, Eric, you don't get it. And he wouldn't say anything. He didn't tell me. But it was that moment I was like, get what? There's no uncle that has that much power. And that's kind of went to my Delta Force commander named, named Bam Bam and said, Muhammad Ibrahim carries the weight of Saddam Hussein. And the only way he carries that weight is Saddam's got to be here. And I said, he's in this town. And Muhammad Ibrahim's carrying his weight. And if we get Muhammad Ibrahim, he might be able to take us. Now, this is mid-October. So now it's exclusively trying to figure out how on earth do we get to this one Muhammad Ibrahim al-Muslit. And on December 1st, we identified the, the bodyguard, Muhammad Ibrahim's driver. So December 1st, we capture the driver. He's a cousin of the head of security, the governor to Crete. Now things get all political on us. Yeah, Brian. That's a lot to deal uh, with. That's a lot to deal it, with. It's so much to deal with, but basically the army, the U S army says, Eric, this guy, we don't think he's the driver of Muhammad Ibrahim anymore. And by the way, his cousin's highly connected to this puppet government we picked in. So Bam Bam says, Eric, you cannot arrest the driver of the one man that I think is connected to Saddam. And the more that I'm explaining to Bam Bam, I said, this guy, you know, Saddam's in Tikrit. Bam Bam says, Eric, first of all, we think you're doing awesome. That's why we're putting all our resources into your prisoner's information. But nobody in the United States government thinks Saddam is here. Now, the political ramifications of upsetting our puppet government, they're so high that we cannot arrest that bodyguard's driver because nobody thinks that bodyguard really is important. They certainly don't think he's with Saddam. So I made a deal with Bam Bam. I said, can we bring in the driver to the government governor of Tikrit, our puppet governor's office, and let me talk to him? but I'm going to catch him in lies and I'm going to make them obvious to you. And if he's lying to me, I need us to him have him arrested. I interviewed, I had bam, bam, gave me 45 minutes. I, in front of the whole Delta force team, I interviewed the driver of this one bodyguard. And I thought that bodyguard could take us to Saddam. I busted him in two lies and bam, bam now is looking at the governor's head body, head, his head bodyguard, the governor's and bam, bam said, chief, your cousin lied to us. We got to go. So Bam Bam arrests this driver who's politically connected. And Bam Bam looks at me and he said, we're about to get some phone calls. Eric, we're on a clock. We got to go now. So at this point, we're on the clock, right? I've got this driver. Driver, it only took six hours. And six hours, he breaks. And he basically said, Eric, 
I drive for that bodyguard. I deliver every order for every attack in the Sunni Triangle since this war began. And I deliver millions and millions of dollars throughout the Sunni Triangle. And he said, the bodyguard that I work for, Mohammed Ibrahim, is taking those orders from Saddam. And at that moment, December 1st is when I realized we might be onto something. I might not be completely crazy. Because at first, when you make this declaration to Bam Bam, Saddam Hussein is into Crete. To be able to get to the point where you're at here now, in this moment, with this driver, and, and to have to take pretty incredible risks to do it. You know, the, the political dynamics of the fact that this guy's related to this governor that's in place, like, this is not good for you guys if this goes sideways and if it goes south. And if we're wrong, this is going to be a real problem. Like the president of the United States is probably getting called if this thing starts going sideways in this tight. 100% the president's getting called. So this isn't just the governor of this province of Tikrit. It's called Salahuddin province, but basically it was Tikrit. The problem was that Tikrit was Saddam's hometown. It was the center of the Sunni yep. triangle. Yep. It was the hornet's nest of the enemy. And we forced this guy to be the puppet governor. He got whatever he wanted and millions of dollars and full protection. He had a bodyguard whose number one job was to keep him alive. And we have no idea how that bodyguard kept this governor puppet of ours alive. And this bodyguard's cousin was my driver that we just arrested. So. We're in a real pickle here. You're in a pickle and the clock is ticking and we don't have a lot of time to screw around. We got to try to get this thing done. How do we get from driver to Ibrahim? Take me to Okay. It. Driver says, Eric, if you want to find Muhammad Ibrahim, he stays at one of five safe houses every single night. I'll take you to all five of those safe houses. Next night, we raided all five safe houses. No bodyguard. Brought me in all the prisoners. I could get these prisoners to talk because I knew how to listen. I knew how to build trust. Safe house people, the prisoners, said, Eric, you scared that bodyguard into the town of Samar. We'll take you to the subcommander's house where we think he is. Next night, we go to the subcommander's house. No bodyguard. But subcommander's younger brother breaks and says, Eric, subcommander, I'm sorry, Mohammed Ibrahim, the bodyguard, he didn't come to my brother's house. He rented a house one block from where you captured me. That bodyguard's there right now. Immediately go to the rental house of Muhammad Ibrahim. We knew we had him. No bodyguard. But his 20-year-old son was there. We, the 20-year-old son of Muhammad Ibrahim was there. It was a good hit. There was just no bodyguard. Do you have any sense as to how much Time had passed. I mean, did you just miss him? Was he there? I mean, wh where was he? So the 20 year old son came in and we connect and he looks at me and said, Eric, my dad, the bodyguard, Muhammad Ibrahim, was here two hours before your soldiers came to this house. And he said, he left. And he looks at me, the boy looks at me and he said, How would I know where my dad went? And now I'm looking at all these prisoners, all these prisoners that helped us get to this moment in time. And I'm like, oh, shoot, that was our shot. How would any of them know where he's going to go, wherever he was trending to go? Any intel they could tell me? I basically it's like it's like back to the future. Right. I just messed with history. We just got so close to anticipate where he would go next. It was purely sp speculative. 
I mean, it was like, I just missed my shot. I've wrecked this behavioral pattern up so much. I don't know how to even guess where he would go next. He said he was just here two hours ago. I have no idea where he's going next. And you're standing in this moment and this whole thing could be falling apart. I want to take you back to Oklahoma. As a kid growing up in Oklahoma, you were adopted. And you got to a certain age in your life where you said, I, I want to know more. I want to go out and find my biological mother. You're 20 years old and you track her down. Tell me that story. Sure. So I was, I was adopted. Um, and the thing is back then there was no 360 in me or whatever. And you were just told you can never find your biological parents. You'll never know. And I didn't really care to find out. It wasn't, it wasn't so much I wanted to know where I was from. I just didn't like anybody to tell me I couldn't do it. Like it yeah. really, I'm like, says who? Like, who are you? And when I got to a point where I'm like, wait, I can do whatever I want. And I bet I can find her. So I went to my hometown out in the middle of Western Oklahoma, went to a library and I thought, okay, what do I do? And I didn't know, right? But what do you do? You ask the locals. And so I asked the librarian, I'm like, I got to find somebody and kind of hit her up on what I was looking for. And she helped me find a few medical records. So it's led to, 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 um, which led to phone books, which lead to yearbooks, which lead to a name of a lady who should have been my grandmother, been my biological grandmother. And I got the address and went and I waited for her to get off of work. And she comes strolling in this neighborhood I asked her, I'm like, hey, do you have a daughter that maybe had a kid 20 years ago? And she's like, no, you look too old. You look, and I'm like, back up a sec. Do you have a daughter that possibly had a child on May 10th, 1972 and gave it up for adoption? She's like, yeah, you probably ought to come inside. And she was super sweet. And, and she even offered, she's like, hey, do you want to, you know, this biological mother of yours lives in Texas. And I said, I don't need to meet her. I don't even want to mess with y'all. I, I, I want a picture because I found her. And I, I don't like you didn't tell, not you, but I don't like that they told me I couldn't do it. But what it told me was that people can be found. Anybody, can, anything can be done and just because people say it can't, or it's the way it's always done, or that's not the way we do it. Like what says who says what Eric, this is the way we always do interrogations. Yeah. But what if they don't work and who says this, you know, and all they told me, Saddam's not here. Saddam's not here. Saddam's not here. You have to do interrogations. These one. And I'm like, for the group, no offense to the government, but you can't find anybody. You didn't find, you hadn't found bin Laden yet. Why are you telling me where Saddam is? Like, you don't know any more than I do. And so it wasn't that I knew I was right. I just knew I shouldn't listen to those that was saying I was wrong as a data point to say I should stop believing I was right. He was just here two hours ago. You just missed him. You're being told once again, you can't do it. It's not going to happen. And oh, by the way, like we said before, time is ticking. Our officials are looking. We've, you're far into this thing. Time is ticking. He was here two hours ago. Where do we go next? So 
I couldn't put myself in the world of Muhammad Ibrahim, but I knew his son could give me something. I didn't know what it was, right? Like I did not know, but I had to say, let's just feel the son out. And so I connected with Muhammad Ibrahim's son and Lee starts talking and he's all beat up because apparently him and his dad don't get along. And Muhammad Ibrahim, like the most, the one guy who can take us to Saddam him and his son are in like this battle because he doesn't respect his son. The boy's crying. And he's like bawling and tell me his dad doesn't respect him as a man. And I'm like, oh, my word. Brutal. But he says, I wish my dad and I would do things like we did when I was little. So what you guys used to do? He said, we used to go fishing. He said, Eric, he doesn't take me fishing anymore. And Brian, I'm like, you know, son, I. I really don't want to jump in the middle of this. I, I don't. I certainly wouldn't take up for your dad, but he is in the middle of a war right now. I said, we might want to cut him some slack on the fishing. And the boy said, no, Eric, they still go fishing. They just don't take me. And it's when he told me this, I remembered one of the early interrogations that I did is we captured the cook of Saddam Hussein. And the chef said, Eric, being Saddam's chef, comes down really to this one thing. Saddam loves this one fish dish. It's called Maz Goof. He said, I make the best Maz Goof in the world. I'm Saddam Hussein's cook. And I asked the boy, I said, wait, where do they go fishing? He said, they fish along the Tigris River. And I said, where? He goes, Eric, they just built this fish pond next to the river. They fish along the river next to the pond. And when the boy said they just built a fish pond, that's when I knew, Brian, why are you going to build a fish pond during the middle of a war unless you're stocking it for your brutal dictator boss who's got to have his moz goof? So I go to Bam Bam and I'm like, we got to go to the pond. He's like, and I tell him the whole story. And basically my time's up. So here I'm down to the wire, right? We thought that rental house was going to be the last great shot. We have time for one more raid. Bam Bam says, all right, we're going to the fish pond. Last night they go to the fish pond. No, and I'm like, oh yes. And we saw two guys along the river. This We're tracking. Like, this they go it. into this, they go into this little bitty shack and we can't miss them. This shack's like 12 by 12. They go in and we hear on the radio, we got two guys. And we're sitting there waiting for the call. And Bam Bam calls back and he said, Eric, it's nothing. It's just two dry holes. He said, Your flight's coming into Baghdad. That's it. And, and at this point, we have all these prisoners like we use these prisoners so often they're living with us. They're not take, they're not even taking them to the prison. They're in our that pool house living with us. So I had to get all the prisoners out of the pool house, you know, got my stuff, go to the helicopter pad. They put me on this big Chinook helicopter. Bam, bam, brings these fishermen and I'm done. Like it's it. It's That's like, it. hey, it's over. We gave it a shot. So what happens? I mean, you're you're essentially packed up. And headed out, but we still got to get to Ibrahim because we still got to get to Saddam. That would be ideal, sure. So that's it, right? Like I fly to Baghdad. I've got all these prisoners. There's nobody on the deck of cards. There's nobody that anyone in Baghdad's ever heard of. There's no one that anyone in the intel community. This is a brand new and local insurgency. I just used the Joint Special Operations Command for six months to round up a bunch of people who really we had no evidence on. And there was no criteria that deemed them anything useful. So the interrogators like, hey, how did your trip go? Uh, hadn't seen you in six months. Um, we're not keeping any of these guys. We're shipping them straight to 
Abu Ghraib, right? That's the place you ship prisoners and you'll never see them again. It's like, so I had that that, that night before the next day, they were going to ship off all my prisoners. Well, I brought in those two fishermen, went back and forth. One of the fishermen breaks, says, Eric, I'm the distant cousin of Muhammad Ibrahim's deputy. By the way, Muhammad Ibrahim and my cousin are always together. And a couple of days ago, they came and got the, the address of my mutual aunt and uncle in Baghdad. So this fisherman, this guy fishing, now turns out to be the distant cousin of the deputy of Muhammad Ibrahim. And he says, Eric, they're always together. And they came and got the address of, our, of my cousin, mutual aunt and uncle in Baghdad. I think they're hiding from you all in Baghdad. And I'm like, we're in Baghdad. That's awesome. Here we go. And I called the Delta commander and I'm like, I can, if you can do this raid, we are, I really like this. I'm, I'm heavy on this. You know, I'm strong on this. And I go through this whole story. <laughs> he said, uh, are, are you the guy that brought in the fishermen <laughs> from Tikrit? Right. I said, yeah. He said, Eric, I'll put it on the list. And I said, I, I get it. Like I, what are you gonna? What are you gonna tell the Delta Force command? Right. Okay. My, I'm told my days are my my flights leaving in three days. My flight come, my days come and go. My flights coming in. I'm leaving at eight o'clock in the morning, and at two o'clock in the morning, the last day in the country, the 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 bam bam of Baghdad. The Delta commander in Baghdad calls and he said, Eric, we had a slow night. We did your raid. He said, no bodyguard. The guy wasn't there. But we'll bring in the prisoners from the house. They brought them in at two in the morning. I started to talk to the person they owned the house. At four in the morning, I realized this man doesn't own this house. They were captured at a house in Baghdad, that distant relative. I said, this, this guy's from Tikrit. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the deputy, the prisoner, the person that's always with my bodyguard. And at six in the morning, he breaks and he says, yep, Eric, I'm the deputy of Muhammad Ibrahim. I'm like, that's awesome. I need you to take me to him. And Brian, I'm thinking to myself, if you can do it the next 15 minutes, that would be really fantastic. And he said, Eric, last night, when the soldiers came and captured me, the bodyguard, Muhammad Ibrahim, he was sleeping in the bed next to me. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is Delta Force. They did not miss my bodyguard. He's got to be, he's one of the prisoners. He's got to be, right? So I go to the, to the guards. I said, bring me any prisoners. There were just three other prisoners, hoods over their head, lifted up the hoods, looking for what I'm looking for. You know, my prisoner, Muhammad Ibrahim. I, I'd never seen a picture, but I knew he was supposed to have like a John Travolta, Tom Brady type chin. And Brian, before I got the hood off, I saw his chin and I knew it was him. And I was in such shock. I mean, finally, we got this guy, right? And I didn't know what to say. So I just said, man, you're Muhammad Ibrahim. <laughs> I've been waiting to meet you. And he said, I've been waiting to meet you too. And he knew I was the interrogator that had been on this Delta Force team trying to track him down. And so I had less than two hours. I brought him in, into the interrogation booth and I knew my time had come. This was my shot. I didn't know for certain, but I knew this is all I asked. Give me one shot. He said, I've been waiting to meet you too. How the heck does he know who you are? So when I, <laughs> so when I get, to, I, I came to Iraq from Los Angeles 
And I'm, I'm told, like, there's this stupid rumor that when you go to war as an interrogator, if you wear civilian clothes, the prisoners might like you more because they don't see you as a soldier. They see you as a civilian. I'm coming from L.A., right? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's going to be hot. So I brought all these stupid civilian clothes, like short sleeve, button-down shirts. And so I go to Tukrit, Iraq, and the only I brought my army uniform that I did for the race, but my civilian clothes were this short sleeve baby blue button down shirt. And I wore it every single interrogation. It was my go to. Right. So you do 300 interrogations in this little bitty town and prisoners come and go out of the prison. I built this reputation. I was the interrogator in the blue shirt. So when he sees me, I said, hey, you're Mohammed Ibrahim. I've been waiting to meet you. He said, you're the interrogator in the blue shirt. I've been waiting to meet you too. And I'm like, well, okay, we're getting, getting a little publicity around here. So that he, that's how he knew me. All right. Before we get into the conversation that you have to have with him to ultimately get to end game here, do you still own the button down blue shirt? I do. It's in my closet. That's awesome. It's that's awesome. a that's very cool. prized possession. Yeah. I took it. After the capture of Saddam, I took it back on my next deployment with the Joint Special Operations Command. It's been on 90 combat raids. And uh, it's got blood, a few blood stains on it and things like that. But it's, um, you know, stupid things you kind of keep as memorabilia. Yep. All right. So you got him. You pull the hood off of this prisoner, basically sitting on the ground, right? You got these guys lined up. You're talking to the one guy and you're like, wait, there's more prisoners here you pull the hood you see him he knows it's you you know it's him now you got to talk to him so i got my bodyguard i've got a little bit of time they're not keeping me nobody's nobody's gonna let me stay i've got to get him to talk i didn't know what to do but i told myself don't press it right like don't go your direction let him lead i'll follow and so i wanted to be direct but i didn't want to force a direction. So I simply said, Hey, the only thing we can talk about is the exact location of Saddam. That seems plausible. This is what we're doing, right? right? This is what uh, we're doing. It's the only thing we can do. Right. And he looks at me and I didn't know what was coming out of his mouth, but I told myself, you got to hear him, hear him. Don't miss a word. He's going to tell you what to do. And he looks at me and he said, you give me way too much credit. He said, the president, he said, I don't know where he is. Right. And I knew, I said, track, got it. He, you give me way too much credit. Like, why does this guy say that? And I thought, okay, Muhammad Ibrahim, Saddam Hussein has hundreds of bodyguards, thousands from Tikrit. He picked this guy. Why did he pick this guy? Of all of Saddam's bodyguards, they use the power, their, their connection to Saddam against the local populace. They were like the mafia, right? The people feared them. They respected them, but they feared them, but really they didn't like them. The United States invades Iraq. Saddam knows the United States is coming after him. Why did we not find anybody on the deck of cards in Tikrit? Because Saddam Hussein knew 
all the people will help find people in the deck of cards. So now may everybody in the deck of cards leave this little bitty town. That is why they said there's nobody in Tukrit. There's nobody important. We never found anybody on the deck of cards in Tukrit until we found Saddam. But why this bodyguard? Because Muhammad Ibrahim was the only nice one. He was a whiskey drinking, domino playing, nicest bodyguard in the world. And Saddam Hussein knew I can let Muhammad Ibrahim know where I am. The people will not turn him in. And when he was saying, you give me too much credit, what he was really saying is, I shouldn't have been put in this position. I don't deserve to have this much power. It's not fair. And I looked at him and he said, you know, because he said, you give me way too much credit. I don't know where this guy is. And I just said, I didn't give you any credit. I didn't know who you were before I came to this country. Because about the 300 people that I've interrogated and the 40 of your family members that he forced to get involved in this insurgency that I have in this prison right now, they give you credit. I said they gave you full credit for ruining their lives, right? I didn't know what he's going to do. And then he rolls his eyes. Yeah, that kind of that's that whatever type roll of his eye, but he wasn't rolling his eyes at me. He was rolling his eyes at Saddam. He blamed Saddam and I knew. So then I've been holding on to this piece of information, right? Muhammad Ibrahim's wife had had a baby. The baby was three months old. Muhammad Ibrahim and his wife's baby had been living at hit at her father's house for three months. It was like less than a kilometer from the entrance of our post. I never raided the house. And I told him, I said, your wife, your wife had a baby. And I said, the person's name, they're living here at this house. I said, and he was shocked, right? Like he was just shocked that I knew that. And I said, I never raided the house. I said, where would I go to find someone other than their spouse? And I said, but I would never put that baby's life in danger. I said, what will he do? What will he do for your baby now? And that's where I caught him, right? Like he starts, he starts whelping up. And he's, he's kind of wandering his head and my clock's running out. Like it is down the time to go. And my buddy's looking in, he's like, you got to go, your flight's coming. And he finally looks at me and he said, I don't know if I should do it. <laughs> he didn't say, right. He didn't say he couldn't. He said, I don't know if I should do it. And I'm like, Oh man, I really wish you would. And then he said, Eric, I can't, I can't do it. I can't. And I said, I got to go. And I told him, I said, I'm not messing with you, man. I'm leaving. I said, there's only two people that know he's there, you and me, and I'm leaving. I'm done. My tour's up. I said, I'm taking you to your cell and you'll never be talked to again. It's not because you can't do it. Nobody knows. Nobody knows he's there, but you and me. And I'm leaving. I need it now. And I put him in his cell and he's like, I got to think. And I said, you're going to change your mind. I will be gone. I'm not kidding. You're never going to see me again. And I told him, I said, when you change your mind, I won't be here. I see you got to go nuts. You got to go so crazy. Make the guards come care for you because they're the only ones who are going to talk to you. Go crazy. And I put him in a cell and I left and I went packing my bags and I knew I'm like, dang it. I don't know if he can actually do it. I don't know. Cause at this point, Brian, you're starting to wonder, have I made this entire thing up? 
Am I absolutely insane? Because when you get back to Baghdad and you're with all the interrogators in the headquarters of the Joint Special Operations Command, you literally have all the intel that exists in Iraq. And not a single one of the people at this headquarters where I was, where the prison was, thought Saddam was in Tikrit. They thought I was nuts. And I'm like, I guess we'll never know. And I went and packed my bags. They picked me up and I'm driving to the, they're, they're driving me to my flight across the tarmac. You have to essentially leave them there, but you leave them in that moment of when you change your mind. And so time and urgency became your ally in this thing. Honestly, if you would have had more time, maybe it would have been different. Maybe he wouldn't have acted, but the fact that, he saw you walk away and then was taken to the cell. And he's like, this guy's right. I'm never going to see him again. I have to do something about this. All right. So what happens here to wrap this thing up? No, that's a good point. Maybe I should have tried that strategy more often. Um, so as we're driving the senior interrogator, we're coming up to the flight and he kind of leans over and he said, what did you do to your prisoner? Right. Cause I'm kind of the noob. I hadn't been there for six months and i was like i didn't do anything to him why he goes well the guards are really worried they think he's trying to kill himself they said he's yelling and screaming and won't stop banging his head against the wall of his cell and i'm like oh my gosh he just broke so i jumped out of the truck ran across the tarmac went and got muhammad ibrahim out of the cell brought him to the interrogation room i lifted off his hood real quick and i was like where is he and he looks at me and he said we got to go i was like don't mess with me right now. Where is he? He goes, Eric, we have to go. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going back to Tikrit. He said he's in this little village called Adwar at the farmhouse of a man named Kais named Jassim. And he said, we got to go. And so I got out the map and he pinpoints. He goes, Eric, I'm not kidding. We have got to go right now. And I know what honesty looks like. This man's telling me the truth, right? We got the sketch. They're back to pick me up. And I'm like, this guy just broke. He's going to take us to Saddam. He is in Tikrit. And they're like, go get on the plane. I'm like, you don't understand. And they, the senior interior is like, no, Eric, you don't understand. We don't know where Saddam is. We just know he's not there. We have 15,000 soldiers. We've been to every house twice. He's not there. Go get on the daggum plane. And I gave him the sketch and the map. And I'm like, please call Bam Bam telling the bodyguard, Muhammad Ibrahim, is here and dying to take him to Saddam. And I gave him the information and I left. What are you thinking when you get on that plane and you're pulling out? I mean, you, you sort of, you got to leave it to fate in that moment. And you said, get, get Bam Bam, get Bam Bam. Bam Bam was the guy you were working with constantly. And my guess is in that moment, Bam Bam got it and thought, oh, Eric, all right. I believe Eric, he's got it. But what's going on in your brain as you're, as you're leaving now? Yeah. I mean, it would be great if I could go how oh, I knew Bam Bam. I, I, I knew if they called Bam Bam, that would be great. I was really in a complete cloud of dust. Right. So if you can imagine probably the last 60 days, you know, I'm talking two or three hours of sleep a day. I'd lost 25 pounds. And when you're in the army, you don't have 25 to lose. Um, you start losing your mind a little bit, right? You really start questioning things. And, and then you see this person you thought you were never going to meet, Muhammad Ibrahim. 
like at that point, the the level of surreal is beyond anything I'd ever experienced. So I'm already in this cloud of, am I going home? Am I still alive? Is that really a bodyguard? Where am I? Like, and then did he just break? Okay, I told him, there's a flight. I'm leaving. Hey, here's, here's Admiral McRaven, by the way, who's sitting right next to me, who, you know, I'm, I'm in this complete different world because I'm just a person, right? So you can look back and be reflective. But when you're going through those moments in a war zone, I don't know really what I was thinking. It was just a complete blur. So how do they get Ibrahim to this house to ultimately make this final capture? So I get on that plot flight. I'm with Admiral McRaven. Mm-hmm. We are flying to Doha Cutter because he's got a brief that headquarters, maybe it's General McChrystal or the of the of, of the, in Doha Cutter. And I've got to do a top secret out briefing just to get back in the United States. You got to do out briefings mm-hmm. with your this task force. So the next morning, we show up, we get off the plane. And when we get off the plane in Doha, there's a posse, a little group of people that grab Admiral McRae and pull him off. He comes over and he says, we're turning around. They're working on something. And I'm like, awesome. We're going back. And he goes, you got to stay here. You've got to give your briefing. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. But there was a little bit of hope, right? But again, you're still like, what does this mean? We always do raids. Nobody's there. So he flew back. So the next morning, they pick me up in the hotel, and I'm driving to the headquarters. They're driving me. And I'm thinking, did they get him? Did they get him? And the driver doesn't say anything. And I'm like, well, he doesn't look like. And so I kind of hit him up. I'm like, hey, anything? He goes, I don't know, man. I went to bed about 6 in the evening. So he's he doesn't know. So we get to the headquarters, and I'm just looking at eyes. And none of these people look any different. Like, not a – you can tell. They're dead men walking. But we get to this one section, and that's JSOC. So none of them should have known. So, so they knock on the door, and I'm waiting for them to open. I'm like, did something happen? And a guy pokes his head out the door, and he just goes, all briefings today have been canceled. Clunk. And I'm like – what does that mean? Is that good? Like that could be good. That was my first spark. And so the Sergeant knocks on the door and he says, staff Sergeant Maddox can't leave the country until he gives his briefing. And I noticed the look on this Lieutenant Colonel's face was like, and he grabs me, pulls me inside the door. He said, you're Eric Maddox. (laughs) I'm like, yes. He said, Eric, all briefings are canceled because we got him. We got him last night. He said, your bodyguard did it. And the lights went out. <laughs> months and months, raid after raid. We got him. We got this person here. Raid, nothing. We got an intel piece here. Raid, nothing. Other than prisoners. We got yeah. an intel piece here. Not yet. We got here. He was just here two hours ago. You get Ibrahim. We're in Baghdad. We got to go back to Tikrit. You don't even get to go back to Tikrit. And finally, they got him. You said the lights went out. What happened? So I'm I'm next to this gunnery sergeant 
who knew me were really good friends. And when the guy said it, I don't know. I think I blacked out. I didn't fall, but the lights went out. All I, all I could remember is my buddy, this gunny shaking me going, you did it. I could just see his mouth moving. And then the sound coming up. He's like, you did it. You did it. Holy, you did it. Right. And I'm like, please don't wake up. Please tell me this is not a dream. And then, um, then I'm just immediately in this JSOC headquarters, I'm just taken around to every single room. And they're like, talk to us. How did this work? How did this go? Right. And so it was just blur. And then we fly to the United States and immediately I'm taken to the Pentagon to secretary Rumsfeld's office. I mean, straight there. And there's all these admirals and generals that brief secretary Rumsfeld. And then they take it to Langley, the CIA headquarters. And the head of the CIA at the time was George Tennant. And by him, take me straight to his office. Right. And I briefed George Tennant and the entire CIA Iraqi intel team. And so it's again, we're back to this blur. Right. Like I was a staff sergeant. I don't know how many generals or admirals I'd ever actually talked to. And at this point, Secretary Rumsfeld sitting right there going, well, what do you think is going to happen? And he's awesome. Right. But it's just it's just a blur. And then Secretary Rumsfeld was so happy. He on the spot in front of all these admirals and generals, he said, I'm going to have my own team of interrogators. He said, I'm sick and tired of having to borrow army staff sergeants who are Chinese, Mandarin, linguists in Los Angeles. So now the fun really kicks in, Brian. I get back to Los Angeles. There's an email from the Office of Secretary of Defense, and they had gotten the, received the funding for the Defense Intelligence Agency to have a 30-person civilian interrogation team. And I was being hired as the first one. You're Eric Maddox. They said, are you Eric Maddox? And, and that's... Yeah. What happened? You've had years to reflect on it. It's obviously become a huge part of your life. I want to talk about, to wrap us up here, the legacy of that and what it's meant for your life. But how do you ultimately think we can follow the steps of the intelligence that happened? But it feels like something interceded at the end there for these pieces to fall into place. Have, have you Have you reflected on that, how it ultimately, it's just, it finally comes together? And it finally works. So I do a lot of self-reflection that I don't share with big groups because you cannot describe the challenges and the teamwork, right? I was with Bam Bam. And I was on this team and these are some bad dudes. They're awesome. They're, they're the best, of the best. And they worked and did so much above and beyond for the person that everyone said was crazy. And I never had the opportunity to be able to go see, we were right. And, and we got him and, and when I look back on it, I was, after the capture of Saddam, I was sent around the world. I was told, go teach this thing. Go teach your technique. And one of the places I was sent to was the Delta Force compound. And I taught there, but Bam Bam came up to me. And he's a real quiet-spoken person. And he sat in the back. 
And he didn't say much. He just, he didn't say, Hey, do you remember? It's like, you don't have to say anything, right? When you go through that experience, nothing needs to be said, but he sat back there and watched for four hours, took his notes, was very quiet, didn't ask any questions. And I just watched him. And I knew at that moment, I'm like, he's proud of me because he was my leader. He inspired me. He never said good job, bad, never said bad job. And we failed, 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 failed and failed and failed. And so for me, the legacy is that's what I can accomplish when I have a great leader. Mm. It's not look what I found. Look what I did. Yes, I did that. Bam Bam's the greatest leader I've ever been around. That I would I would follow that man to the sun. And that team. We're also they're just leaders. And when you get a group of leaders without their egos. And they don't have to be the one out front. And they certainly had to trust somebody who knew it was my biggest challenge. So I would get so frustrated with my prisoners. But as soon as I stepped in front of that Delta Force team, I'd better remember I am at the gutter. I'm the bottom of the rail. Right. But when that perfect synergy of all every single member of a team knows it's important, it's not know your job, stay in your lane. It's we have a lane and we don't necessarily know who's going to be in which lane, which side, which mission. It's just pick up and go. Like, I can't describe how proud I am of that. And, you know, Brian, when I leave that group, I'm not invited to the barbecue. I'm not one of them. I don't ever claim to be one of them. But for that moment in time, I was their interrogator. It was called Operation Red Dawn, the final moments that led up to the capture of one of the worst bad guys in the history of the planet and one of the worst bad guys of recent memory, the ace of spades, Saddam Hussein, found in a dirt hole in the bottom of the ground in this house in Crete. And those Delta Force guys stormed in there, pulled that covering off, found him in there, captured him, and brought an end to that part of that saga, at least as it related to him. Eric Maddox played a huge role in that. Eric, before we go, you got to tell people where they can find you. I know you've done a lot of speaking about this, writing about this. So so let, let's let folks know where they can, they can read more, they can see more about, about your story and what you're up to now. Sure. So for the last several years, I developed a corporate training program on how to become a better listener in order to build the highest level of trust. And I teach it throughout the world. Um, I can be reached at eric at ericmaddox.com. Ericmaddox.com is my website. Uh, I love to present. I love to teach people the power of becoming kind of a Jedi listener. Uh, like I said, after the capture of Saddam, I went on to do 2,700 interrogations. And I love the art of psychological influence. I love the art of building persuasion by empowerment. And I love training people to show them what they can accomplish when they can listen and be a leader to empower their people by understanding and seeking to understand through communication. He's Eric Maddox. He was part of a six-month process that ultimately led to the capture of the Ace of Spades, Saddam Hussein. Eric, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you, Brian. 
He's Eric Maddox. I'm Brian Jodis. This has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.